Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the sovereign God over this universe and that through your word we have access to your great wisdom and truth. And we thank you that even though... uh, this world, we, we, as we live in this world, we might feel as though it's a struggle sometimes, Lord. We thank you for that province that is uh, stamped as true by the resurrection and ascension of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the midst of this ambiguity and the complexity of the world in which we live, Lord, we thank you that we can hear your word, that we can uh, anchor ourselves in your truth and your reality. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. So this is the last week in the book of Job. So I think it's about eight, ten weeks we've been working our way through. And and we come to the bit which in most Bibles has got epilogue uh, written in there. Um, It won't work backwards though, will it? Okay, so uh, it's a happy ending. The the epilogue of Job, the very last section of Job from 42, 7 to 17 is a a happy ending. Uh, But not all stories have a happy ending which is Lynette hates. Like she says, if, if a movie doesn't have a happy ending, it's not worth watching. And so she absolutely hates There Will Be Blood, for example. So I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, but there's two characters, two main characters, that they're thoroughly unlikable. And they sort of bumble their way through two hours of you hating them. And the movie ends with one of them clubbing the other one to death with a 10-pin bowling pin. You know? and, and you look at that and go, that's not a, not a happy ending. But there's actually a whole lot of controversy about Gone with the Wind. Is the ending of God and with the Wind a happy ending or a sad ending? Now, it's both in the, in the book and the, and the movie. It's, uh, it's a little bit ambiguous. Now, I did have a clip from you, because some of you haven't seen Gone with the Wind. Uh, and well, No, it's not going to work. Anyway, at the end of the movie, uh, the main characters are there, and, and Scarlett O'Hara has been manipulating people and all the way through the movie. And, uh, and right at the end, Rhett Butler, who's the male hero played by Clark Gable, seems to come to his senses and he says, yeah, Scarlett, I'm leaving, you're on your own. And she runs after him and she says, oh, oh Scarlett, Rhett, Rhett, what will I do? And of course, Clark Gable says, frankly, miss, and frankly, I don't give a damn. <laughs> you know, and then he shuts the door and walk, well, he actually walks off into the sunset, quite literally, and, and Scarlett sort of goes away sobbing and... And some people say, oh, I don't know, it depends. I think it depends who you identify with. If you identify with Scarlett O'Hara, it's a sad ending. If you identify with Rhett, it's probably a happy ending. Anyway, over morning tea, if you find the sermons doesn't stir anything to talk about, you'll be able to talk about the ending of Gone with the Wind and express your opinions. But it's actually good that not every story has a happy ending because life doesn't have happy endings always. It's, it's, life is ambiguous and there, there, there might be parts of your story that are good, but there'll be other parts of your story which are, are not so good. And, and, and sometimes the story almost seems to end badly. Sometimes the young mum who has cancer dies. Uh, sometimes the wicked media baron continues to succeed. Uh, sometimes that the person in palliative care dies in pain. Uh, Sometimes the young person who is struggling with mental health issues never actually overcomes them. 
and spends their entire life wrestling with, with poor mental health. And as we saw, if you remember a few weeks ago, uh, I talked about Petra, and sometimes the migraines just keep coming. And so the stories, our stories don't always have the happy ending. Sometimes they are a- ambiguous. And up until Job chapter 42.6, at verse 6, the story was very ambiguous, wasn't it? Uh, just to, to recap, if you're, if you're not aware of it, Job is a, a righteous man uh, whom, un- he, he's totally unaware of this, in, in heaven, the court of heaven, Satan comes to God and says, you know, look at Job, well, I think Job, God starts, he says, look at Job, he's a righteous man, and Satan says, uh, he's, only, he's only righteous because you bless him and look after him. You, you let me loose on Job for a while and you'll see Job's true character come through. And so unbeknown to Job, God allows Satan to, to do his worst with, with Job, and he certainly does, doesn't he? He, he? he destroys all of Job's possessions. He kills all of Job's family. And then he strikes Job with a painful skin disease, which is so bad that he, he takes to himself with broken shards of pottery. And then Job's wife deserts him. And then to top it all off, the people who Job thought were his friends came to him and basically condemned him and said, Job, you must have done something really bad for God to punish you like this. And Job's going, I don't know what, I don't know what I've done wrong. I, the only thing Job concludes is that somehow God has got it wrong and that he thought I did something wrong, but actually I haven't. And then in chapter 38, God appears and, and basically says to Job, Okay, you tell me, Job, were you there when I, where, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I, I laid out its foundations? How are you able to do the things that I do and the power that I have? And at the end of that, God's speech, Job, at the end of 42 verse 6, it just says, and Job repented. Job realised that he had no right to criticise God or to call the you know, to question the way that God was running the world. And uh, Job repents. And the story could have ended quite right there because the theological point of the book of Job is is made by that point. At the end of of verse 6, or the whole book of of Job, says that even righteous people suffer. Or to put it another way, bad things happen to good people. That, there's, that nobody is any more likely to be punished by God or less deserving of punishment than by God than anybody else. And even if somebody appears righteous, and even if you think you are righteous, that will never mean that you will escape suffering. And the other side of the coin, if you think you are guilty and you think you have done, you know, you're racked by shame, that doesn't mean that God is going to punish you in this world either. It's not that simple. It's more complicated. The second theological point of the book of Job is that you should not assume you know why people suffer. That's the mistake that Job's friends made. They said, oh, Job, you're suffering, therefore God must be punishing you for something you did. 
Well, in reality, Job and nobody else in the book has any idea of the events that occurred in heaven which led to Job's suffering. And in a way that it doesn't matter, whatever we want to conclude about what happens in the court of heaven, the message for us as we live here on earth is we shouldn't assume we know God well enough or that we've worked out things enough that we can say, this has happened, or I know that that's because God is doing this and this and this and this. We can't put God in a box. We can't assume we understand him. He is beyond our comprehension and acts in ways that we will never comprehend. And so, like Job, we need to learn to live in humble acceptance. Humble acceptance. That God is God and we're not. Suffering will come, but we shouldn't equate that suffering directly with the punishment of God in this life. So the the book of Job could finish there. Job chapter 42, verse 6. And in fact, some scholars think that the epilogue is added in afterwards. But it does convey some important truths. And if if you turn to chapter 42, you'll see that God does two things in the the last few verses of the book of Job. And the first thing he does is to vindicate Job. Verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, so I go back to verse 6. Uh, you know, Job says, My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Elivas the, the Temanite, I am angry with you and your friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bidad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. I don't know about you, but I often when I'm hurt by somebody, I wish that I could be vindicated. So you know at work somebody is treated really badly and you sort of dream that one day the boss is going to come into the, uh, into the office and call a person out and say, you are bad, you have mistreated this person and I want you to apologise before everybody here. And you know, the person says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And then the boss takes you into that, you know, that corner office you've always, you've always dreamt of and says, you know, because of the way you've been treated, you deserve to have this office. You know. It's not likely to happen. Uh, we don't generally get vindicated in life. I think in my entire life I've been vindicated twice. And again, over morning tea, after we talk about Gone with the Wind, I can tell you about my two stories of being vindicated. But we cannot live our lives expecting to be vindicated. It only happens very rarely. But incredibly here, God does vindicate Job. 
And, and in one act, this, this act of, of taking these, uh, the bulls and the sheep, so that this was a huge sacrifice, seven bulls and seven sheep. So it was more than a, just say to Job, you're sorry. It was make a huge sacrifice to demonstrate just how sorry you are for what you said to Job. But uh, in, in, this, in this single act, God achieves great things. He, re- he redeems the name and reputation of Job. Forevermore it will be recognised that his friends were wrong and that Job was right. Second, he, he, uh, he humbles the friends. Third, he restores the friends into relationship with himself. So God is, is forgiving Job's friends for the slander that they had spoken to him through the sacrifice that is offered by Job on their behalf. And finally, he restores the friends into right relationship with Job as well. As they, are, as they are restored to relationship with God, they also are restored to relationship with Job. And they're probably gathered around the mealtime in the, in the next uh, little story. So God vindicates Job absolutely, publicly, for, for all time. The second thing that he does is to redeem Job, verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate in his house. Again, Job could have been asking, where have you guys been? Anyway, he's been vindicated. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the later part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Keren Habak. Nowhere in all the land were found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 114 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so Job died, an old man, full of years. Alongside the story of vindication or the plot of vindication is the plot or the storyline of redemption whereby somebody loses everything they have or loses a lot of what they have and they sort of go down and reach the pits and then they're redeemed. Uh, Redeemed isn't used that much these days. We only sort of use redeem when we sort of buy something back. But redemption means to be restored. To be, to be renewed, and, and that very much sums up what happens to Job here. He is restored and renewed. And so it's a nice ending, and it's a good perhaps way to, to end the book of Job, to see him vindicated and redeemed. But probably more important than the happy ending, having a happy ending to the book of Job, the book shows us some very important things about God's pattern of redemption for the world. The setting for the book of Job is very ancient. 
It probably is set between Genesis 13 and Genesis 14. It, it lands between the, the Tower of Babel and the calling of Abraham. This is among some of the most ancient stories we have in the scriptures. It, and, and that's because there's, in the book of Job, there is no mention of Abraham. There is no mention of Moses. There's no mention of the law. There's no mention of the temple or the synagogue or anything about Israelite religion. It's just not there. And so most scholars will place it back there. And so this is amongst the, the very earliest writings and insights we have about God. And in the book of Job, we see, though, God's pattern of redemption being revealed. Right back there, God reveals how he's going to redeem the world. And it shows us that redemption involves human repentance. That the pathway for Job to be redeemed was through repentance. For him to, in, in 42.6, say, God, I got you wrong. I, I, I overestimated my own understanding. I overestimated my own goodness. And so I humbly repent and acknowledge that you are God and I'm not, that I've wronged you and I'm deserving of whatever punishment you might have. But it is through that act of repentance that the shedding of blood has effect. And so before the synagogue, before Moses, before Abraham, God was also already calling for the sacrifice of animals as part of the process of redemption. And, and God was not trying to be cruel to animals by doing this. What he was trying to do was to emphasise how serious sin is. He was trying to get across the point that, that sin and forgiveness and redemption is a costly business. And so costly, it's actually about life and death in order for people to be redeemed. We also see that redemption involves a mediator or a servant. So Job's friends couldn't offer the sacrifice on their own behalf. Job's friends had to go to Job, who was the righteous mediator, to make the sacrifice on their behalf so that they could be redeemed. And it was God's way of emphasising the division between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. The gap is so big, there has to be a mediator, somebody who will step into the middle and make the sacrifice and the shedding of blood necessary for redemption to occur. But underpinning God's whole pattern of redemption that he's setting out here is his grace and his mercy. Incredibly, in chapter 42, verse 7 to 17, God describes Job as righteous. Even though in, in chapter 42, verse 6, Job had had to repent. But through the process of redemption, God had not only forgiven Job, he had forgotten Job's sins. You and I can't do that. People talk about forgiving and forgetting. The best we can do is forgive. We probably will never be able to forget the wrongs that other people have done to us. But God is not like that. God is able to forgive and forget. And so people can come to him and say, Job's not righteous, Job's a sinner. No, 
I can't remember Job doing anything wrong. I can only remember Job being righteous. God can, anybody accuser can come to you and if you've been redeemed by God, God looks at you and goes, can't remember anything they've done. Can't remember the sin. Can't remember the shame. It's all being covered by the blood of redemption. And of course, this pattern of redemption that dates probably from 2000 BC reaches its fulfilment and climax in the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Both Jesus and Job are described as righteous. Both Jesus and Job are handed over to evil to suffer. Jesus to the Romans, Job to Satan. Both Jesus and Job were mocked in the midst of their suffering. Both Jesus and Job prayed for their enemies. Both Jesus and Job acted as priestly mediators and servants between God and sinners. Both Jesus and Job made a blood sacrifice. Job sacrificed the blood of lambs and bulls. Jesus sacrificed his own blood. Both were publicly vindicated. Job through the acknowledgement of his friends and Jesus through his resurrection and ascension into glory. There's this wonderful little story in the, towards the end of the book of Luke where two of Jesus' disciples are, are walking towards the village of Emmaus and uh, of course it's Jesus appears alongside them and they're talking along and, and, and it says there in, in verse 27 that Jesus, the stranger walking with them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And I like to think that as Jesus was explaining the Old Testament to these guys, he pointed to Job. He says, remember Job, yeah. You remember the way that, that he, was, he suffered, but that out of his suffering, there was righteousness and forgiveness. And remember the way that Job, even though he was, was ridiculed by, the, by those around him, in the end, he was vindicated. And Jesus is saying, the same thing is happening to me. And so as we get to the, the end of the Job, we, we can celebrate the fact that it does have a, a happy ending, that it ends in, in vindication and it ends in, in redemption. But we can also recognise that for many of us, our lives will not have that happy ending. But for many of us, we will continue to live in the ambiguity of suffering and the, and, and the difficulties and, and the struggles that, that even though we pray about them, we, we continue to, to wrestle and struggle. But the book of Job comes to us and tells us that in the end, there will be vindication and redemption. In the end, as, as Job celebrated, we will know our Redeemer lives and that he will stand on the earth and with my eyes I will see God. In the end, our lives, our stories may have an unhappy ending 
but there will be an epilogue, just like there is in the book of Job. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of Job. We thank you for your whole scriptures, but we thank you for the book of Job and the reality that it represents to us, Lord. Even though it has a happy ending, it, it's not glib. It does, it's not producing sort of shallow answers that it recognises and wrestles with the reality of suffering in the world and indeed suffering in our own lives. And as some of us sit here this morning, Lord, we're still stuck at Job 42.6. And in fact, that might be the, the final verse in our lives as well. But Lord, we thank you for the promise of the epilogue. We thank you that through our Lord Jesus Christ, you have won the victory, that you have written a happy ending to the story of this universe. And that through Christ and through our sharing in him, we have the victory, we have the vindication, and we have the redemption that only you can give. And so we thank you for that, Lord. In the complexity of life and the ambiguity of suffering, Lord, we thank you for the hope that never fails. In Jesus, we thank you. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.